have your copies of Scripture, if you will, turn to Ezra chapter 7. Um, we're going to be giving attention this week and next week to Ezra 7 and 8. Uh, as I continue to work with this text, I uh, saw that uh, we would be benefited if we spent a little bit more time here than I'd originally planned. And uh, so the, today's message is actually going to be a two-part message. So uh, if the first part doesn't resonate with you, we want to encourage you to come back and see it all come together for the, in the second part. Uh, and if you're here today and uh, uh, you say, hey, I want, to hear, uh, I want to hear the rest of what's going on there, we want to encourage you to, uh, we want to, encourage you to be back. Uh, before we read our text today, I, I want us to be reminded of a few things, uh, things that have already occurred as we have been working through Ezra. And for those of you who are joining us uh, uh, for the first time, we are working through Ezra and Nehemiah. We are in our fourth week of a nine-week series. But around 539 B.C., the Lord God stirred the heart of the Persian king Cyrus to make a proclamation to begin offering the Jewish exiles um, opportunities to go back to their homeland. Uh, those exiles were those who had been taken captive when the Assyrians and Babylonians had ravaged Israel in 722 B.C. and then again in 586 B.C. And this is what's interesting. The Lord's prompting of Cyrus had been prophesied uh, by the prophet Isaiah a hundred years before Cyrus was ever born. So I want you to know and see the backdrop of all of this as God is bringing about his work. And then the prophet Jeremiah prophesied about the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple and the return of the exiles uh, after their 70 years of exile long before uh, that had ever taken place. But not only did the Lord stir the heart of Cyrus, but remember we have looked uh, already that he stirred the hearts of some of the Jewish exiles. Uh, and a group of about 42,000 returned to Jerusalem with provisions to reestablish the temple, worship, and to rebuild the temple. And we found out that they immediately came together, the scripture says, as one man. That 42,000 came together as one man, uh, and they rebuilt the altar and began worshiping and observing the festivals, and, and they laid the foundation for the temple. And when we concluded there in chapter 3, we thought for sure that uh, we would see the temple go up immediately, but that was not what we found. Uh, what we saw were that the non-Jewish residents of the land, and even some of the Jews that had not been taken into exile, but who had intermarried, uh, they wanted to be a part of building the temple. Uh, and remember, uh, Jeshua and Zerubbabel said, no, uh, you can't do that. This is left for us to do. And they took offense. And in the course of their offense, they began to put up resistance. And what we see is a delay in the building of the temple 18-year delay, in fact. So they laid the foundation of the temple, and it laid there for 18 years, and nothing happened. And then the Lord sent the prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, to preach and to call the people to repentance, and in that, encouraged them uh, to start back building. And then four years later, uh, the temple was completed, and that put us somewhere around 516 B.C. So from the time they returned to the time the temple was completed was almost 25 years, quarter of a century that it took to see that work come about that we would have thought that just initially that it would have, it would have taken place sooner than that. And that brought us to the close of chapter 6 last week. And now we pick up in chapter 7. And I want you to remember that we are about 80 years removed from verse 1 in chapter 1 of Ezra to verse 1 of chapter 7 of Ezra, about 80 years have gone by, and there's about 58 years difference between the end of chapter 6 and the beginning of chapter 7. Now, you're going to find out why that is so important here uh, in just a little bit as we begin to dig into this text. But just to understand again, one of the things that we said last week is that, one, uh, God's work is going to be accomplished. It's going to be accomplished in his time. In other words, it's not going to be resisted and stopped. And there are times when there are long periods of time and waiting periods uh, for his people, sometimes brought about by their own sin, uh, other times brought about uh, by God's direction in other ways. I want us to look at the text, and we're going to read chapter 7 and 8 
in one reading, uh, so if you'd follow along. And I want you to pay attention to this phrase because this is going to be uh, our, our, our theme and our topic here for this week and next week. And we'll look into it and I'll explain it a little bit more in just a moment. Ezra chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. After this, in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra, the son of Syria, son of Azariah, son of Hilkiah, son of Shalom, son of Zadok, son of Ahitub, son of Amariah, son of Azariah, son of Meriah, son of Zerahiah, son of Uzzah, son of Bukah, son of Abishu, son of Phinehas, son of Eliezer, and son of Aaron, the chief priest. This Ezra went up from Babylonia. He was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses and the Lord, the God of Israel, had given and the king granted him all that he asked, for the hand of the Lord was upon him. And there went up also to Jerusalem in the seventh year of Artaxerxes, the king, some of the people of Israel, and some of the priests and Levites, the singers, the gatekeepers, and the temple servants. And Ezra came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king. For on the first day of the first month, he began to go up from Babylonia. And on the first day of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem, for the good hand of his God was on him. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. This is a copy of the letter that King Artaxerxes gave to Ezra the priest, the scribe, a man learned in matters of the commandments of the Lord and his statutes for Israel. Artaxerxes, king of kings, to Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law of God of heaven, peace. And now I make a decree that any one of the people of Israel or their priest or Levites in my kingdom who freely offers to go to Jerusalem may go with you. For you are sent by the king and his seven counselors to make inquiries about Judah and Jerusalem according to the law of our God, which is your hand. And also to carry the silver and the gold that the king and his counselors have freely offered to the God of Israel, whose dwelling is in Jerusalem, with all the silver and gold that you shall find in the whole province of Babylonia, and with freewill offerings of the people and priests vowed willingly for the house of their God that is in Jerusalem. With this money, then, you shall with all diligence buy bulls, rams, and lambs, and their grain offerings, and their drink offerings, and you shall offer them on the altar of the house of your God that is in Jerusalem. Whatever seems good to you and your brothers to do with the rest of the silver and gold, you may do according to the will of your God. The vessels that have been given for you for the service of the house of your God, you shall deliver before the God of Jerusalem. And whatever else is required for the house of your God, which it falls to you to provide, you may provide it out of the king's treasury. And I, Artaxerxes the king, make a decree to all the treasures in the province beyond the river, whatever Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law of God of heaven, requires you, let it be done with all diligence." Up to a hundred talents of silver, a hundred cores of wheat, a hundred baths of wine, a hundred baths of oil and salt without prescribing how much. Whatever is decreed by the God of heaven, let it be done in full for the house of the God of heaven, lest his wrath be against the realm of the king and his sons. We also notify you that it shall not be lawful to impose tribute, custom, or toll on any one of the priests, the Levites, the singers, the doorkeepers, the temple servants, or other servants of the house of God. And you, Ezra, according to the wisdom of your God that is in your hand, appoint magistrates and judges who may judge all the people in the province beyond the river, all such as know the laws of your God. And those who do not know them, you teach them. Whoever will not obey the law of your God and the law of the king, let judgment be strictly executed on him, whether for death or for banishment or for confiscation of his goods or for imprisonment. Blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers, who put such a thing as this into the heart of the king, 
to beautify the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem, and who extended to me his steadfast love before the king and his counselors, and before all the king's mighty officers. I took courage, for the hand of the Lord my God was on me, and I gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. These are the heads of their father's houses, and this is the genealogy of those who went up with me from Babylonia in the reign of Artaxerxes the king, of the sons of Phinehas, Gershom, of the sons of Ithamar, Daniel, of the sons of David, uh, Hattush, of the sons of Shechaniah, who was of the sons of Pharaoh, Zechariah, with whom were registered 150 men. Of the sons of uh, Pahath Moab, uh, Elihoanai, and the son of Zerahai, and with him 200 men. And of the sons of Zatu and Shechani, and the sons of uh, Jehaziel, and with him 300 men. Of the sons of Aden, Ebed, the son of Jonathan, and with him 50 men. And of the sons of Elam, uh, Sheshahiah, and the sons of Athaliah, and with him 70 men. And of the sons of uh, Shephatiah, and Zebediah, the son of Michael, and with him 80 men. Of the sons of Joab, and Obadiah, the son of Jehel, with him 218 men. And of the sons of Bani, and and Shelemeth, and the son of uh, Josephiah, and with him 160 men. And of the sons of uh, Bebiah, Zechariah, and the son of Bebiah, with him 28 men. And of the sons of uh, Asgod, and Johanna, and the son of Hakatan, and with him 110 men. And of the sons of uh, Adonikam, those who came later, their names being uh, Eliphalet, Jehu and Shemaiah, and with them 60 men of the sons of Bigaviah, Uthiah, and Zachur, with him 70 men. And I gathered them to the river that runs to Ahava, and there we camped three days. As I reviewed the people and the priest, I found that there were none of the sons of Levi. And then I sent for Eliezer and Ariel and Shemaiah and, and, and uh, Elnathan, and Jerob, and Elnathan, Nathan, and Zechariah, and Meshulam, leading men, and for Jorib, and Elanath, they were men of insight, and sent them to uh, Edu, the leading man at the place of Cassiphiah, telling them what to say to Edu and his brothers, and the temple servants of the place of Cassiphiah, namely, to send us ministers for the house of our God, and the good hand of our God on us, they brought us a man of discretion of the sons of Mahalai, the son of Levi, son of Israel, namely Sherebiah and his sons and kinsmen, 18, also Hashabiah, and with him Jeshahiah of the sons of Miriah and his kinsmen and their sons, 20, besides 220 temple servants whom David and his officials had set apart to attend the Levites, these were all mentioned by name. And then I proclaimed a fast there at the river Ahava that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek Him, seek from Him a safe journey for ourselves, our children, and our goods. For I was ashamed to ask of the king for a band of soldiers and horsemen to protect us against the enemy on our way since we had told the king. The hand of our God is for good on all who seek him, and the power of his wrath is against all who forsake him. So we fasted and implored our God for this, and he listened to our entreaty. And then I set apart twelve of the leading priests, Sherebiah, Hashabiah, and ten of their kinsmen with them. And I weighed out to them the silver and the gold and the vessels, the offering of the house of our God and the king and his counselors and his lords and all Israel were present had offered. I weighed out also in their hands 650 talents of silver and silver vessels worth 200 talents and 100 talents of gold, 20 bowls of gold worth 1,000 derricks and two vessels of fine bright bronze as precious as gold. And I said to them, you're holy to the Lord and the vessels are holy, and the silver and the gold are a freewill offering to the Lord, the God of our fathers. Guard them, 
Keep them until you weigh them before the chief priests and the Levites and the heads of the fathers' houses uh, in, Jeru- in Israel at Jerusalem within the chambers of the house of the Lord. So the priests and the Levites took over the weight of the silver and the gold and the vessels to bring them to Jerusalem to the house of our God. Then we departed from the river Ahava on the twelfth day of the first month to go to Jerusalem. The hand of our God was on us. And he delivered us from the hand of the enemy and from ambushes by the way. And we came to Jerusalem, and there we remained three days. And on the fourth day, within the house of our God, the silver and the gold and the vessels were weighed into the hands of Marioth the priest and of Uriah. And with him was Eliezer and the son of Phinehas. And with them were the Levites, uh, Jehozabad, and the son of Jeshua, and Nodiah, and the son of Minuai. The whole was counted and weighed, and the weight of everything was recorded. At that time, those who had come from captivity, the returned exiles, offered burnt offerings to the God of Israel, 12 bulls for all Israel, 96 rams, 77 lambs, and as a sin offering, 12 male goats. All this was a burnt offering to the Lord. They also delivered the king's commissions to the king's um, satraps and to the governors of the province beyond the river. And they aided the people and the house of God. Would you pray with me? Father, we're grateful for the record of your word. Uh, we know that it was important uh, and that your spirit has given this to us. We ask, Father, today that you would help us if we give consideration to it, uh, what it was then what it is today, what it meant then, what it means today for us uh, as we seek you in Christ's name. Amen. I want you to notice that six times in these two chapters, Ezra referenced something to this degree, the good hand of God. The hand of God was on me. The hand of God was on us. The good hand of God was on me. And I In studying this passage of Scripture, uh, this phrase has just uh, just taken a hold of me and uh, brought about a profound interest as to what it meant. And beyond that, it has become gravely important to me. And I believe that it should become important to us. It was Ezra's ultimate explanation of his calling, his gifts, his task, his life, and the provisions that God made for all of them. So our aim this morning, and will be next week as we meet, if the Lord wills, to hear about the good hand of God, to try to discover its meaning as it is given in this text, and we'll try to answer this question, how is God's good hand on me? How is God's good hand on me? Another way of speaking about the good hand of God is to speak about God's providence. Now we know that God's providence can be both bitter and sweet, but we also know that it is always good. It's good. It'd probably be good at this point to try to define providence because that's not a biblical word. We don't find the word providence in Scripture. And if we're going to use it as interchangeable at least in some ways with saying that the good hand of God was upon me or, or God's providence was, had taken hold of me and I am living life in the context of God's providence, uh, we probably would do us good to try to define it. Question 27 of the Heidelberg Catechism, and that was given in about 1563, so it's uh, some time ago, The question, and for those of us who are familiar with catechisms, we know there's question and there's answer. Well, the question is this, uh, what do you understand by the providence of God? What do you understand by the providence of God? And the answer that's given in that catechism is this, the almighty, everywhere present power of God, whereby, as it were, by his hand, He still upholds heaven and earth with all creatures and so governs them that as herbs, grass, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, meat and drink and health and sickness and riches and poverty, indeed all things come not by chance but by his, and here's what's important, by his fatherly hand. 
Now we may say, aren't we really talking about the sovereignty of God then? Well, we are in the respect that God can do anything. I want you to hear that in the context. God can do anything. God's sovereignty is his right and his power to do all that he decides to do. Job discovered that. If you remember when we were studying Job, we looked at this. Job said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. In other words, Job was saying that the ultimate definition of sovereignty is that God, you can do anything you choose to do. I'm going to borrow from John Piper a little bit here. Uh, He said this definition doesn't speak of God's wisdom and it doesn't speak of God's plan. Now we discover these two things as we work through the rest of Scripture, but at least as we are encountering God along the way, we recognize that God can do any and everything that He chooses and decides to do. And now we have the framework in the rest of Scripture to look at His wisdom, to look at His plan, to think about His redemptive purposes. And we discover this as we look in Scripture. But Job just simply comes to understand God, you can do anything you want to do. And there is no power and authority, no person, no thing, nothing that can keep you from doing what you want to do. I've thought about this and I'm reminded of a story that Kent Hughes, a pastor, a theologian, told about his wife Barbara who almost died in a surgery that was supposed to be absolutely just a simple commonplace surgery. And he said this, and the way she didn't die was so remarkable that he said, I have to tell the story, and he chalks it up simply as the providence of God. This was the story. It was supposed to be a routine surgery, but something went wrong, and the life of my beloved wife, Barbara, hung in the balance by the thinnest thread. Early in the morning, I had checked Barbara into the hospital and settled back to wait. And as I was reading the morning paper, I recognized a medical technician named Suzanne and cheerfully greeted her. And Suzanne had become friends with my wife's niece when they both had worked in the hospital some years before. Barbara's niece had long since moved away and it was quite unexpected to run into Suzanne, especially since she normally didn't come to the waiting room area where I was sitting that morning. Now, all that sounds quite irrelevant, but it'll prove to be very providential. And my oldest daughter, Holly, joined me at 10 a.m. The surgeon met with us cheerfully and said, perfect, it couldn't have gone any better. Uh, Barbara would be in recovery room for about an hour and a half, and, and then we could see her. So he said, I went home and then came back a little later to find my daughter worried. They had taken Barbara back into surgery, and it was only supposed to take about 15 minutes, and those 15 minutes stretched in to five hours. And we soon realized something was seriously wrong. They couldn't stop the bleeding, and there was no one on the team of doctors that could figure out why. And the day stretched into the evening without any answer, and thus began a long, dark night. Barbara sensed her life was slipping away, and after uh, her doctor's visit at 11 p.m., matters only worsened. Nurses repeatedly changed the dressing, but Barbara continued to hemorrhage and kept growing weaker and weaker. Said at 1.30 a.m., I called for the associate pastor to start a prayer vigil, and I uh, said, got more than I'd even asked for because church members uh, started flocking out to pray with us. said, by the middle of the next day, it looked as if I was going to lose my beloved wife. By then, she had lost two-thirds of her body's blood. Her heart was racing. Uh, she kept bleeding. And as family members gathered around the bed, Larry Fullerton, my associate, commented, uh, you need to encourage her. She thinks she's going to die. Her blood isn't clotting. Remember Suzanne, she had seen me the previous morning and now just happened to stop by just at that moment to say hi and to give Barbara some magazines. And she was shocked to walk in and see our family in crisis. And she felt like she really shouldn't be there, but stayed long enough to hear Larry's comment about her blood not clotting. In that instance, Suzanne remembered 
doing a blood test years ago on Barbara's niece. When she had shown the results to the blood specialist, the niece was warned that if she was ever in a car accident or suffered a similar trauma, that she could bleed to death. So Suzanne ran immediately to the lab, switched on her computer, called up the niece's records, and compared them with Barbara's workup. The pathology was identical. Suzanne then ran to the critical care unit and tried to explain all this to the nurse. Then she dashed back into her supervisor who told her to go immediately to the blood bank and barging into the doctors while they were meeting, uh, Suzanne went on to tell them about what she had discovered. And within an hour, Barbara was given the medication for her rare blood disorder and her life was saved. And he went on to say this. This is not a story about Barbara or Suzanne. It's a story about God. What happened to my wife and Suzanne is a miracle of divine providence. There's no other way to explain it. It really started years ago when two bored lab technicians tested each other. And one, Suzanne, learned that the other, who happened to be my wife's niece, had a rare clotting disorder. And then on the day of Barbara's surgery, uh, ran into the lab technician who normally doesn't come to the area where I was and mentioned Barbara's surgery. The next day, Suzanne stopped by to see Barbara at exactly the right moment to overhear Larry's comment about her blood not clotting. And amazingly, Suzanne remembered the test from years ago and Suzanne saved my wife's life. But was it really Suzanne who saved Barbara? No. God did. It was God in his sovereign care who orchestrated the miraculous details of these events. But I would also say that if God had taken Barbara home to be with himself, he would have been just as involved in the events of the day, just as faithful in his sovereign care. So that's a great testimony. That's the way we need to tell the stories. That's the way we need to end our stories. And Kent goes on to talk about that is the way that we need to see and to view life. So the question that's before us is how do we see the good hand of God at work in Ezra's life? And how does that bear upon us? We'll turn back over to chapter 7 and we're going to begin... And for uh, the remaining time that we have this morning and next week, we are going to look at these six statements that are made in the context of what is going on. And hopefully we are going to learn something about the good hand of God, about His providence, about His sovereignty, and what that means for us and how it relates to who we are and how it relates to how we live. So let's look there in chapter 7. Verse 1, And after this, in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra, the son of Sarai, son of Azariah, son of Hilkiah, son of Shalom, son of Zadok, son of Ahitub, son of Amariah, son of Azariah, son of Marioth, son of Zerahai, son of Uzziah, son of Bukai, son of Abshua, son of Phinehas, son of Eleazar, and son of Aaron, the chief priest. This Ezra went up from Babylonia. He was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. And the king granted him all that he asked for for the hand of the Lord his God was on him. Everything about Ezra's life, every detail, and we're going to see it a little bit later on, every day of his life had been planned and was being orchestrated and carried out by God. I don't know if you noticed the details, but we had remembered back whenever we were in chapter 1 and we looked at chapter 2 and we saw the genealogy and we found out that everybody's heritage had to be verified. 
In other words, when they came back to uh, Jerusalem, their heritage, if they were a priest or whatever it was, all of that had to be verified. It had to be that they could prove that they were of the tribe of Levi and that they were in priestly line. Now I want you to notice here that we recognize that Ezra's being sent back and we're going to find out more about why he's being sent back. In fact, if you look down um, in verse 10, it'll tell us uh, Ezra's heart for being sent back. Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel, specifically in Jerusalem. Now, at the time he was born, he didn't have any idea what that would look like. What he did know by the time he was born is that there had already been a group of exiles that had gone back 80 years earlier. Even before he was born, that group of exiles had gone back. They had reinstated temple worship. They had laid the foundation for the temple. And of course, by now, some 58 years behind him, or in front of him, if you will, some 58 years in the past, they had completed the building of the temple. Now, we don't know how old Ezra was, but we know that he wasn't 80 years old, and most likely he had been born even after the temple had been built. But in the course of that, even in his whole life, he is thinking, what I want to do is I want to study God's Word. I want to be prepared to teach Israel there in Jerusalem. Now I want you to think about that in in light of when we go back and look at the details given here, he can trace his heritage all the way back to Aaron. Now how important is that? Well, it's incredibly important. And God had brought all of that about in his life, even in the giving of his heritage. In other words, he could trace his father back to his father back to his father back to his father back to his father back back, all the way back to Aaron, which put him in the position to go back to Jerusalem and to serve as the high priest and to teach and to do the work that God had already preordained for him to do. Is that happenstance? No, it's providence. The good hand of God was upon him even in his heritage. Now, I don't know where you came from, and I know some of your, I know some of your family background, and, and I like talking about family background. I'm always connecting dots for people. Well, this person was married to this person that was married to this person, and that goes back to their granddaddy and those things. All of those things are incredibly important in your life. They were important in Ezra's life, and they were important in your life. Now, you may not know how it all fleshed out, and it may not have brought you to be a high priest. It may not have brought you to be a great executive. But somehow, in the course of that, God had a plan and has a plan for you in the course of who you came from and how you are today and what you will be tomorrow. And Ezra finds that out. Notice what else it says about him. Not only could he trace it all the way back to uh, Aaron, which made him in line to be the chief priest. But he gets leaves now. Some hundreds of years later, he is being brought even after the fall of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple, all of those things that had gone on. And now the rebuilding of the temple, God is bringing him back to serve as the high priest. And then notice what else it says about him. That he was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses. Now what did scribes do? Well, uh, scribes copied scripture, but they did more than that. Scribes were lawyers. He had studied the law of God. He had studied the law of God with the intent to teach the law of God. Now, it's interesting that we find uh, in in verse 25... Of chapter, of, of chapter 7, uh, it goes on to say, And you, Ezra, and this is coming in this decree that comes from Artaxerxes, uh, the Persian ruler. He said, According to the wisdom of your God that is in your hands, appoint magistrates and just judges who may judge all the people in the province beyond the river, all such as know the laws of your God. So remember, they have already had priests that have gone back and they have taught the law. 
Some of them had a good understanding of the law. Others didn't. We know that they were breaking the law, but they had a good understanding of the law. And then notice what else it says. He said he wanted him to establish and, and, and a way of holding the people of that province, holding them accountable to the law. This is why this is, was so important when we look back that he was a scribe and versed in the law and studied in the law because he would go back now and he would establish magistrates and judges to do what? To make sure that the law was enforced, to make sure that it was obeyed. And he says in verse, um, at the end of verse 25, he said, and those who do not know them, you shall teach. You shall teach. The good hand of God was upon Ezra to one, to bring him to the place where he would trace his lineage all the way back to Aaron that would put him in the position to be the chief priest and the high priest when he returned to Jerusalem so that he would be able to teach the law and then rightly order the rest of the province so that they would learn the law and those who knew the law would be used to be put in places to hold the people accountable to the law of God. Why? Because the hand of the Lord his God was on him. The hand of the Lord his God was on him. Notice what else it says there in verse 6, chapter 7. It said, The God of Israel had given the law, and the king had granted him all that he asked for. Okay? The king had granted him all that he asked for. Why? Because the hand of God was upon him. The backdrop of all of that is Ezra knew all that he needed. And he knew what to ask for. In other words, the hand of God was upon him to give him the things that he knew that he would need. God had given him that wisdom. Why? Because the backdrop again of God's sovereignty is his wisdom. And he had the wisdom of God. God had given him direction, gave him understanding as to what he would need when he would go to Jerusalem. And he had never been to Jerusalem. He had never been there. He had never seen Jerusalem. It wasn't that he had been taken into exile. His family had been taken into exile. He was born while he was in exile. He had never been to Jerusalem, and yet God had given him understanding as to what he would need, and he knew what to ask for. And by the hand of the Lord his God, the ruler gave him all that he asked for. If you have your Bibles there with you, turn over to... Um, Psalm 139. I was thinking through this text. I began to understand that in, in a better way of how significant our birth is and how significant it is to recognize every moment and every day of our life in the context of God's good hand and His providence. Psalm 139, a familiar passage of Scripture, beginning in verse 13. The psalmist writes, For you formed my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Now, we often think about this only in the context of our biological being and our physical being, and that does seem to be what is taking place here. There is a recognition that even the forming, even the forming of the psalmist, he understood to be in the context of being the work of God's good hand on him. But then notice what it says, wonderful are your works and my soul knows it very well. I want you to catch that. My soul knows it very well. In other words, there is an identification with the psalmist in looking to God that even his soul knows and recognizes that God has been the one who has done all of these things 
even informing him in his mother's womb. He said, my frame was not hidden from you. Why? Because you were the one that was making it. When I was being made in secret, when no one else could see what was taking place in my mother's womb, your hand was there forming and fashioning, preparing, and it says, and intricately woven into the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance in your book were written every one of the days that were formed for me. Every day, today, whatever it is that you experience was formed and shaped and fashioned by God. Ezra had an understanding of that. We'll look more the rest of the day and, and into next Sunday, uh, how significant that was in the course of his calling and all that takes place. But notice what the psalmist said, your eyes saw my unformed substance, in your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. In other words, before there was anything, before there was anything, God knew October the 22nd, 2023, and your life and your presence and your being and us being here and Henry and Allison and the children being at his dad's and Mark not being well and being home, Lauren and his family who are away because they uh, are sick and have tested positive with COVID. Every bit of that, God had worked out, planned, it's carrying it out right down to the day and the very act. It doesn't happen by chance. Turn to Jeremiah chapter 29. And the reason I want us to go there because we had mentioned Jeremiah earlier and his prophecy. I had not planned to use this text, I'm going to be honest with you, uh, from Jeremiah 29 because we referred to it. But I had a friend of mine call me out of the blue yesterday afternoon and said, I have a theological question for you. And I said, okay, well, what is it? He said, well, how much time do you have? I said, well, I don't have much time. And he said, well, I'll call you back. I said, well, no, go ahead and tell me what it is so I can think of a short answer for you so it doesn't take up much time. And, uh, and he said, are you familiar with Jeremiah 29? I said, well, yeah, by the way, I am. He said, what does that mean? And if you'll just look, look down here. Um, he said, uh, what is it? Verse, uh, yeah, verse 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord's plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future uh, and a hope. He said, what does that mean? I said, it means probably what you don't think it means. I said, because... That verse pops up in all kinds of devotions. It pops up on calendars. Uh, uh, anytime you look at somebody's Facebook page, most of the time they'll have this verse of Scripture uh, cropped somewhere and put up on their Facebook page and those kinds of things. And what they're doing is they're attempting to promote a promise that they have reached out to and grabbed a hold of. And there are implications for that, but that is not what that text meant. What did that text mean? Well, if we look back up and we won't read it, but it is actually Jeremiah's letter to the exiles. Their 70 years is not up. Ezra 1 hasn't taken place yet. In fact, when Jeremiah is writing this, he is prophesying that Jerusalem will fall, that the temple will be destroyed. So it was before, the, before Jerusalem fell, before the temple was destroyed, he is telling them that you're going to be taken into exile. But he said, I want you to understand that you will only be there for 70 years. And he's not talking to every one of them because even some of those that he was calling the judgment are going to be killed. Some of them would probably die in Jerusalem when Jerusalem was overthrown. He is speaking about the nation of Israel as a whole. But remember that in the course of that, there are those individuals who do come back from exile. And you know who one of them was? Ezra. Ezra. 
Ezra was representing God's deliverance in bringing him out of exile. He's not even been the one who had been placed into exile. His family members have, but he is representing them and he is coming back. So when we hear there in verse 1, these are the words of the letter to Jeremiah, the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests prophets and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. And this is coming out of them. This was after King Jeconiah and the queen, the mother and the eunuchs and the officials of Judah. And he goes on to say in verse 4, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I've sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters and multiply there and do not decrease but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for its welfare. You will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you and do not listen to the dreams that they dream for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil to give you a future and a hope. How? By his good hand. In other words, the good hand of the Lord was going to be upon them. And there was going to be a people that would be preserved. To what end? To the coming of Christ Jesus. Why? Because the good hand of the Lord was upon them. Now we're here today. Some of us has trusted Christ and some of us haven't. Some of us have professed him, some of us haven't. But here's what we need to hear, that we have heard today already as we have tracked through the 129th Psalm, and as we have looked at the Lord's Prayer, and as we have given attention to passages of Scripture in John, pointing us to Christ and him being the fulfillment of the ultimate bread of life that we all need, and as we have cried out in singing, come unto Jesus, an invitation to come to Him and to trust in Him. As we have sung praises to God, as we have looked at this text and heard of the good hand of God, we have been availed the opportunity to hear the end of all that God was pointing to in Christ because his good hand was upon Ezra, who taught the law, who pointed to Christ, who saw reform take place in the church, in the temple, and in the community, to the end that Christ would come and be the ultimate deliverer. So what can we say as we close our time together here? What can we say at this point about the good hand of God on you? Well, the good hand of God on you has brought us here today to give us an opportunity to consider the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if you hear and you're a believer, and you've trusted Christ, this will mean for you that what does that mean ultimately for you? I believe the text has pointed us to the very fact that your being here today and your being every day that you have been and your being every day that God will grant because He has already numbered those days is a demonstration of God's good hand on you. We'll look farther into what that means, but it is a demonstration of God's good hand on you because he has granted you the grace of life. And as a believer, at least from that point till now, you have had the grace of God upon your life 
so that you would know the one who is to be most treasured, the Lord Jesus Christ. To be reconciled to God. To live in the context of the peace of knowing that your sins have been forgiven. To know that in life and in death, everything is about the Lord Jesus Christ. To make available to you eternal life. And that you know with full assurance that you'll be in the presence of God when you die. That became particularly important to me this past week as I preached the funeral of a man uh, who there was no evidence uh, that he was a believer and little evidence in the course of with the understanding of the family that they had an understanding of the gospel. Hopefully they have a better understanding today. But for those who've trusted Christ, you have the assurance. You have that assurance. That's the reason every week we point to the assurance of pardon. Now, if you're here today and you haven't professed Christ and you haven't trusted Him, what does that mean for you? The fact that God has given you today, it means that He has given you, at least at this point, we would have to say, an opportunity to be brought front and center to give consideration to the work of Christ on your behalf and His atoning work. I know we live in a day where there's little, little excitement. I won't say none, but little excitement regarding the Word of God. We're going to look at that excitement more next week. But I want to tell you, we ought to be super excited to hear God's Word read as we had today. To hear it explained. Because it is the Word of life. And apart from that word and apart from that gospel, there is no life. Come unto Jesus. Come unto him. Let's pray together. Father, uh, you have granted us the opportunity to assemble in your presence, to give attention to your word, uh, to hear the gospel, to come front and center and have your spirit Speak to our hearts and give us direction regarding our own lives. We come and behold you and look to you now. Would you grant us grace as we continue to worship you in Christ's name. Amen.